You don't need to turn there. If you wish, you may. I'm going to uh, read from Matthew chapter 6, just uh, from verse 5 to verse uh, 13, but it's more just the uh, one word in verse 6, the word when. So that's the, the topic for tonight. So let me uh, begin at verse 5. Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that when what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So far in God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, please help us now to know your word, to understand it, to apply it, but also to uh, enjoy what your word has to say to us so that we may not sit uh, in a spirit of grumpiness or stiff-necked rebellion, but rather in the freedom of being children of God who wish to hear from their Father. Please bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. One of the great things about human interaction in certain areas is uh, when we go through something and we feel as though we are perhaps unique or alone, and maybe we don't know, maybe we don't think that we are absolutely unique or alone, but we say something about an experience we've had, a, a difficulty, a trial, a thought pattern, things like that, and we speak to someone and they say, oh yes, me too, and you go, oh really? And you, you get a bit of comfort from the fact that someone else has suffered like you or uh, has experienced something as you have, and then you start to share your experience. And there's something quite valuable in that, and perhaps that has happened to you. Um, it can be a medical thing where you are uh, complaining about a, a bad knee and someone else has one and what helped them, and you, you like to have those conversations if you think they can help you, or if you've had thoughts that... Uh, get into your head and how you think about things. And someone else says, yeah, I struggle with thought patterns like that too. And, and so on and so forth. One of the areas where uh, Christians sometimes start to doubt their Christianity is in the matter of prayer. And so sometimes they speak to someone and they will say, yeah, I really struggle at times with prayer. And they go, oh, you too. Now, it could be that you have a small circle of friends who are absolute hypocrites and you're all going to hell. Uh, um, but my sermon tonight is meant to talk about the lack of prayer in relation to backsliding, but also to not leave you in a state of despair, but to help you to progress in an area that is 
difficult. And so a lot of the uh, sermon will be on the difficulty of prayer. Now remember, Christ is having to speak to His disciples and teach them. That's the context. Uh, They are not such godly men, though they had the Old Testament at their disposal, that they were able to say, we don't need to be taught how to pray. We are doing just fine. We are men of fervent prayer. We see no issues in our life. These are the apostles. These are God-fearing Jewish people. They've grown up in covenant households, and nevertheless, they need to be taught how to pray. Now, when you think about the topic of backsliding, which has been the series we've been looking at in the last several weeks in the evening, I saw this quote from J.C. Ryle that I thought was quite appropriate. And J.C. Ryle, I think, is one of the clearest, best uh, writers. You would never know he was writing uh, a couple hundred years ago. He says, What is the cause of most backslidings? I believe, as a general rule, one of the chief causes is neglect of private prayer. You may be very sure men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Somebody who you may know, who no longer walks with the Lord, who has apparently fallen away, at least from professing the faith in the visible church, uh, doesn't go from strength and vitality in their spiritual walk to waking up one day saying, no, that's enough. It is slow and incremental where they become comfortable with a pattern of leaving God and communion with God and then it becomes normal to them and then they lose the conviction in their soul about how they are neglecting God and they get to a point where it doesn't trouble them at all. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about a hundred years later, has something else to say. He says, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do. And there's good reason for that, because when you pray, you are fighting against your flesh, you are fighting against often the devil, and you're fighting against all the allurements of the world that do naturally drag you away from retreating from the world. You live in the world. The world has many enticements. It has many distractions. Some of them not at all sinful, by the way. A lot of people give off prayer because they attach themselves to things that are not sinful. Let me say that again. People will replace prayer with things that are in and of themselves good things. I think that floor needs to be swept again. Those clothes need to be folded. This grass is not going to cut itself, will it? And you can see how we will find amazing strength and energy for mundane, non-sinful tasks in order to escape prayer. But we also have to remember, not only do we sometimes replace prayer with non-sinful tasks that can become sinful because what we are doing is with a bad principle in our heart, but that we will always generally do in our lives the things that we really want to do. I have a friend and sometimes his favorite soccer team is the early game. The early game is 
sometimes 4.30 a.m. Uh, we are on a time change with England, so you get the 4.30 a.m. games, you get the 9 a.m. games, and sometimes you get the later noon game. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had a friend say, I can't believe I woke up at 4 o'clock to watch the team play like that. Now, I confess, sometimes I've thought about getting up and watching it live, and then I think better of it uh, in this day and age where you can uh, turn off all your gadgets and watch it a few hours later at a reasonable time. But if I didn't have that gadget, I think I probably would force myself to get up and watch these games because I want to. That's the thing. I want to. I love it. And I will make great sacrifices for the things I want to do. Your child needs to get to the best music teacher. And that person happens to be 35 minutes in that direction. And you have no problem going through traffic, making adjustments to your schedule, doing this and that, or maybe there's this tutor, or whatever it may be, the things you will do for your children because you really want them to do these things, right? And you make time for it. And sometimes you take great financial sacrifices for yourself or for your children for the things that you really want to do. And humans have an amazing ability to do the things they really want to do. And oftentimes, prayer suffers. Octavius Winslow said that we that should we choose a single characteristic of personal declension more marked than another, it would no doubt be the decay of the spirit of prayer as that feature. I was writing a chapter uh, for this this week, and I sent it to my friend Gary. Uh, he is someone who will read a chapter if I ask him to, and I says, please pray for me. I says, never have I been able to write a chapter so easily in my life. It was on how difficult prayer is and how, and I was just writing like Mozart composing. It was a thing of beauty. I was just typing away and the words are coming out and this and that. I thought, who's going to stop me? And then I had to think about why is this so easy? So easy to write on a topic that addresses something what? So difficult. Now, I want to look tonight at two things that are important, and they have to go hand in hand, and that is, uh, and I'll look a little bit more on this in detail later, but corporate and public prayer, as well as private prayer. So the private prayer is in Matthew chapter 6. There is a command to private prayer. And when you pray, so the when there is the assessment by Christ that it will happen to those who are disciples to those who are Christians, to those who are the people of God. When you pray, go into your room, and isn't it interesting, and shut the door. And I don't even know what types of doors they really had back then, but clearly there was a principle that Christ understood to insert in there that you need to find a place where you're not going to be distracted too easily. How many times have you been in a situation where you've got to pray and the next minute someone comes tearing into the house, the phone rings, this happens, and it's as though Satan somehow manufactures ways in which even your own spouse or children can find you. 
Shut the door. Isolate yourself. And pray to your Father who is in secret. You who are in secret, pray to your Father who is in secret. That's what he's saying basically. And your Father who sees in secret, who sees you actually taking time to be isolated from the cares of the world where you are thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it, He will reward you. So there's the sort of uh, assertion by Christ that private prayer will happen. But then there's also corporate public prayer that is another staple of early Christianity. And I'll just give you a few verses from the book of Acts. But in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They devoted themselves to prayer. In the next chapter, and they devoted themselves to, and they have those four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That's what they devoted themselves to. Again, using the word devotion. Devotion in chapter 1, devotion in chapter 2. You can get to chapter 12, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Many were gathered together and they were shooting the breeze. They were praying. Nothing wrong with shooting the breeze, but they were praying. Now, a little bit about the difficulty of prayer. I have given you a hint of that, but I do want to drive this home to you, that it's not easy. And theologians from the early church have talked about prayer in different ways, but one way in which I thought was quite useful was prayer as a conversation with God whereby we contemplate invisible realities. Now, this will help you to understand something of why prayer is so hard, because you are contemplating things you cannot see, things you cannot touch. You are going to an invisible God. You are in a world where when we want things done, when we want to see things, hear things, taste things, we can see them. Our eyes behold them. We see progress. We see regress. We are so used to that. So imagine taking us into another realm whereby we're asking for things to be done that goes completely against the grain of how we live the rest of our lives. Mark, will you take the kids to school? I don't say, I'm going to contemplate invisible realities now, Barb, and they will arrive there if I pray hard enough. No, I have to get in the car and drive them. And hopefully get a few words out of them. But then when you pray, you're asking a God you do not see, and so especially living by faith, to do things whereby you are completely entrusting the results to Him rather than yourself. And again, I say, when you want to eat and you make food, you are entrusting the result basically to yourself, things you can see and touch and handle, and things get done. Prayer is moving you outside of a realm that you are so used to. And that's why it's difficult. Now, Octavius Winslow, he is one of my favorite writers I've been reading of lately, but he has a glorious description of prayer. He says it's communion of the spiritual life in the soul of man with its divine author. It is a breathing back the divine life into the bosom of God from whence it came. So whenever you pray, you are breathing back into God's bosom, into His presence, 
the life that He has actually given to you so that you can breathe back. In other words, you are praying to God because God has enabled you and ordained that you should be able to pray to Him. You are giving back to God a gift He has given to you. And it is holy, it is spiritual, and it is humble converse, conversation with God. Now, Stephen Charnock, when he's speaking about prayer, he says prayer is a general means for everything we want. But it ought to be more pressed than any because both of its universal influence, prayer has a universal influence over things that are seen and unseen. But then he says, and the common deplorable neglect or slight performance of it. So we've had J.C. Ryle, Victorian era. You've had Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century. You've got Stephen Charnock in the Puritan era, 17th century. What are they all saying? The same thing. It's difficult. And John Bunyan, author of over 40 books, spent time in jail, Pilgrim's Progress, Holy War, a man of great preaching abilities. Just listen to his experience. I'm not trying to justify our experience, but I'm just trying to help you understand how these godly saints have spoken. He says, May I but speak of my own experience and from that tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought. It is enough to make you poor, blind, carnal men to entertain strange thoughts of me. So if I was to tell you of my experience in prayer, you would have strange thoughts of me. That's Bunyan saying that. For as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so reluctant to go to God. Bunyan. And when it is with him, so reluctant to stay with him, that many times I'm forced in my prayers first to beg God that He would take my heart and set it on Himself in Christ. And when it's there, when it's there, that He would keep it there. In fact, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind. Nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace. The Spirit helps in our infirmities. That's quite remarkable, I think, from John Bunyan. I could give you so many more. I think you get the point. But how do we then cure this problem? It's not something whereby we all just sit around. Now, he's spoken about how God gives us the Spirit. And that is one of the cures, is that the Holy Spirit enables us to do the things we can't do by nature. But how do we cure this problem? Well, we first have to figure out, well, what sounds like a reasonable prayer life? And this is something where the Bible gives us a little bit of guidance, but it's not overly prescriptive. We're not Muslims. We don't just say, okay, if you do this three times a day facing this direction, you are fine. And actually, people love that. If you were told that at 9 a.m., 12.30, and 7 p.m., you had to get on your knees for five minutes every day, look a certain direction, say these words, you would actually love that because that would help you to just say, well, tick off that box, I'm good, I'm done, I've done what I need to do. The Bible doesn't actually teach us to pray that way. 
Because we are masters at always doing the bare minimum if we are given that. And we wouldn't pray a second longer than what God would tell us to do. That would be our 15 minutes. Because that's carnal. That's the natural man. So we are told to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And I take that to mean not that every second of the day is prayer, but that praying without ceasing is that your life is marked by prayer each day. Pray without ceasing is talking about a general disposition whereby you wish to pray to God. And we're told to pray at all times in the Spirit so that our prayers should be in the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we are given examples of where people pray suddenly because of a need. A need erupts and you pray. Remember when Miriam's hand became leprous and Moses in Numbers chapter 12 says, Oh Lord, please heal her. There was a need. He was gracious. He prayed. But then Daniel does set aside times to pray. He does actually set aside times in which he turns towards Jerusalem in the Old Covenant and he bows his head and he prays to God as he had done previously. There was a set habit of prayer in Daniel's life, but there is no question in my mind that his prayer life was simply that. Because theologians and ministers and Christians have understood that while we are to devote set times to prayer, there is also what we call spontaneous prayer. And I pity the person who actually thinks it's one or the other. There is something about having a time when you pray to God that's very valuable, but there's also something that is most liberating and I would say exciting and joyful when you feel you can call upon God at any time and pray in any circumstance. Imagine thinking, well, it's not that time of day to pray. I'll have to remember to come back to that. No, I walk around the house because my kids lose so much stuff praying all the time because of them. I have prayed probably hundreds of times for things to be found. Now that may seem trite to you, but I love going to my kids when I find something. I says, ah, the Lord, I prayed. There it is. Hey, Katie, can, she can, can you talk to her? Go after her at the service and say, does, does your dad do that sometimes? And uh, It's a little bit triumphant, but I can tell you, it's just so great to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, please help me find that $20 I've misplaced. <laughs> so there is set times for prayer that are very valuable there's spontaneous times for prayer that are valuable and we are told that God will reward us if you just look at Matthew chapter 6 how many times the word reward is used you will find there are bad rewards where you get the reward of the world where you do things only to be seen by men but then there's the reward of of God, And that may mean you have assurance because after praying you feel like you really are a child of God and you grow in your assurance. It may be that He actually rewards you with answering that prayer immediately as sometimes He does. But then sometimes you see a prayer answered in a long distance away. It could be years, decades. It may even be after you die. When Stephen prayed, Lord forgive them, he died, and then the Lord forgave the Apostle Paul. And I would like to believe, though I cannot tell you for sure, that Stephen in glory was aware of the Apostle Paul's conversion, that his prayer was answered. 
So there are positive ways in which God can excite us to pray. And one of those is that He answers prayers. He rewards us. He blesses us. He gives us. As Charnock said earlier, it is a means that we use for getting things that we want. And our job is to then align our will with God's will and to ask according to His will. But when you pray, pray like this. And one of those requests is, give us this day our daily bread. And all that that means. See the kingdom of God advance in your own life and in the life of others. Forgiveness of sins. And all of those petitions are things that you want, right? But then also there's another reason why we pray and why God enables us to pray. And that is because He will sometimes discipline us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. How does God get us to pray? This is the negative side. So I've given you the positive side. Blessing, reward, communion, assurance, forgiveness of sins, all of those things. There is another reason. And in Hebrews chapter 12, if you begin in verse 3, we're told, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now they're struggling against sin as all Christians do. We struggle to not backslide every day. Then he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And what's interesting is that in our struggle against sin, there's a remedy provided for that right here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now in Romans chapter 8, our sonship is connected to the Holy Spirit, but also to prayer. And sonship involves discipline for the Christian. And one of the ways in which God keeps us close to Him is that sometimes God does discipline us. Sometimes God makes life very uncomfortable. Sometimes we are pinched in certain ways whereby we have no other recourse than to fall before the throne of God and plead for mercy and to ask Him to help us. And He tells us in verse 10, that uh, these fathers did this discipline. But then verse 11, and it's not pleasant, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And the context is sonship. The context are Christians. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, here's my point. God, because He loves us, knows our tendency to wander, knows our tendency to drift, so He orchestrates our life in such a way whereby we do feel at times pinched by providence 
And that causes us to keep closer to Him. Because if He never made life uncomfortable, if He never allowed us to sink into those valleys, we would ultimately all begin to ignore God. That's just the way sin works. We are never up for too long, floating upon the clouds of paradise, enjoying the blessings of reward upon reward. And we're never down for too long where we are just left for the rest of our lives in utter despair. Generally, God knows how we need to suffer sometimes, but also how we need to thrive. And David was often driven to the Lord during trials. We wouldn't have the Psalms if this wasn't true. Most of the Psalms are actually lamentation. If you just go to, not now, but if you go to Psalm 38, for example, just read Psalm 38 and ask yourself, why did David write Psalm 38? And then you read it and you realize because God had disciplined him. A lot of the time we will go to God because God forces us to go to him. Because we very often don't willingly go to him. And a lot of times the most meaningful prayers come under duress and actually don't make much sense than the prayers where we are going through good times and it's easy to speak. I've heard many ministers say and many theologians that people who go through trials and sufferings and go to God in prayer, if you were to actually look at the words they prayed, it would be like gobbledygook. You wouldn't even understand them half the time. Because sometimes you just go and you're like, oh Lord, just please have mercy upon me. And then you don't even know what to say. And you just say, I'm sorry, or you this or that, or just please help me. <laughs> and there's nothing eloquent. So there's a positive side to why we pray. There's also sometimes a negative side God uses to get us to pray. But then there's also the use of others in corporate prayer. So when we look at corporate prayer, we find that uh, there are ways in which we can stir one another up by our prayers. And sometimes those corporate prayers, those set meetings or those opportunities where others are saying, let us pray, are helpers to praying. Someone will phone you and they say they've got this problem and you speak to them on the phone about the problem and very often at the end of the phone call you will say, as I have with many of you, why don't we pray about this now? It's a very helpful way to pray when you are involved in a life of somebody else. There's also another way in which you can pray when others are involved, and that is, not only is it corporate, but when you meet with someone, when you go through the life of someone else and they tell you about their problems and you say, let us pray about it, you also encourage them in when you pray for them and they listen. So as you say, let us pray about it, you are praying, but then what that tends to do is as you pray with them, that prayer does actually remind them of the value of prayer. So the problem brings you to pray, but then the praying actually leads to more prayer because it becomes normal then. When you pray with someone, you remember that you prayed with that person, they are blessed by it, and guess what that leads to? More of those occasions, not less. It has a reinforcing ability. 
And that is something that only in a corporate environment will you have those opportunities. I think that is why at every Bible study, I hope uh, in our church, we set aside time for prayer. And that prayer that we set time aside for is an extremely valuable part of our congregational life. I will tell you that uh, Ferd, he sends emails, and in the emails you see the lists of things. It's pretty good. I could never do this, but it's even color-coordinated. Very good, Ferd, very good. Uh, but the things that have been prayed for, sometimes you get answers to those prayers or, or whatever it may be, things that have been prayed for in the past, and you can go down and you can see what is actually happening in the lives of people. But if you don't go to Bible studies, if you don't meet with Christians, you're going to take away an avenue that God opens up for praying. And so what's going to happen? The more you retreat to yourself, the less likely you're going to pray by yourself. Because the one feeds the other. The more you pray in private, the more you're going to want to pray in public Why? Because you've seen the blessing and value of prayer and you want that for others. People who have not enjoyed God in private will not want others to enjoy Him in public. But those who have enjoyed God in private would want others to enjoy God in public. So I think if you are lacking in your corporate prayer life with other Christians, you are likely... I'm not going to make an absolute statement, but I'll say likely, you are likely lacking in private. And I want you to think about that as a point of application. Are you praying in private that reflects what you are doing in public? And are you doing in public which reflects that what you do in private? And the goal of the Christian life is for both to reflect each other. Because what Christ says in Matthew chapter 6 is that there are people who love to be seen on street corners to make a pretense and what they are in public is actually not true in private. But when you pray, go into your room. Pray in private so that when you pray in public, you are not being a hypocrite. Now let me just close all the time with just one last point. And this is, I think, quite important. It's exceedingly important when we pray to God and when we pray with each other to normalize prayer as just something that we do as Christians. Not to be embarrassed by it, but to normalize it. So that if you have a family that gathers together for worship, I would encourage you that everybody prays. Not just the Father. Let me say that again. Try and get everyone to pray. Now, I'm not saying every single time that there isn't a time where someone before dinner or whatever those, I'm not saying that. I'm saying try and get everyone to pray at certain times. Listen to your children pray. Let your children listen to you pray. And if you are single, try and find people to pray with because that will stir you up. It will encourage you and find a weekly meeting where you can do that. And I will just say that as you do that, you will find that you will always enjoy prayer when it's done. There are times when I look outside at the rain and I think, Mark, don't do it. 
don't go for that run. You, you're, it's going to be cold. And so I don't. And then I'm miserable. <laughs> but then I do sometimes go out for that run, and I do get going, and I do get warmed up, and I do finish the run, and I get home, and I am just so happy. It feels so good. A bit of exercise. And prayers like that, sometimes you don't want to do it. But after you've done it, do you not feel like, yes, I'm so glad I did it? Well, let me encourage you to do it privately and publicly, and you will see God's blessing not only upon your life, but upon the lives of others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the testimony of saints through the ages who've described the difficulty of prayer. And we can all confess that we have been driven to prayer because you have made life difficult for us. And if you hadn't, we probably would have neglected you. But more than that, we ask that we would also enjoy prayer and not simply be driven by negative reasons, but by positive ones to enjoy fellowship with the triune God, to be blessed by you and to know that as children, we can, not must, we can speak with our Father in heaven. Bless us to that end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us stand and sing once again. Hymn number 76. Praise my